there, listener, and welcome to episode 202 of the Ski Podcast. Regular listeners might know that I've been in Scotland this week, and we'll have a full podcast all about that trip and more in episode 203. Today, however, is a special chat with Blair Aitken, who I spent a fantastic day with on Ben Laws earlier this week. Now, regular listeners might recognise the name as Blair was previously on the podcast in episode 173 when we discussed the film 10 in a Weekend, skiing the 10 highest mountains in the UK over a single weekend. Blair is a former Alpine national ski champion who's been backcountry skiing in Scotland since the mid-90s. He's been promoting ski touring amongst British skiers well before it became as popular as it is now. And the courses he offers through his business, British Backcountry, book months in advance. I chatted to Blair about his early days in skiing, from training midweek at the dry ski slope in Hill End to racing on the Noram circuit in Canada. We cover his time in Val d'Isere, running the New Gen Ski School and exploring the backcountry of the Van Wars National Park. And finally, we look at what courses British Backcountry offer, plus his new book, Ski Touring in the Northern Cairngorms, which sold out almost as soon as it was published. It was a real pleasure to speak to Blair, someone who knows and understands Scottish backcountry so well that just after we spoke, we set off through the driving wind and rain to arrive at one of the most scenic pitches I've ever skied on, just as the sun came out and shined on us. Let's have a listen to my conversation with Blair Aitken, British backcountry expert. Great. So I'm currently sitting here in Killin with Blair Aitken from British Backcountry. How are you going, Blair? Great. It's rainy killing, isn't it? We're it is rainy killing. We've got a little delay and then we're going to go up later and uh, hopefully we're going to get that window in the weather. And I guess that's all a part of Scotland. I think listeners, you know, might recognise you because uh, you were on the show before when we were talking about that great short film that you did called Ten in a Weekend. What were they, the ten? The ten highest mountains in the UK, which is one of which we're going to try and ski today. And you did all of them in a long weekend, didn't yeah, you? A half day uh, on the Friday and two full days Saturday, Sunday. Yeah, well, it was uh, it was brilliant. That I really enjoyed talking to you, and the videos are uh, amazing. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But you know, we're with you today. You're going to be guiding us on Ben Laws. You know, we're going to look for some snow, do our best to uh, track some down. Hopefully, we'll get that gap uh, in the weather. But you know, since you've been running British backcountry, you know, I wanted to talk to you about. The kind of rise of ski touring and the type of clientele that you're getting, the effect of uh, climate uh, on skiing in Scotland in general. But I wondered if I could just start off by by taking you back a bit. I think our paths may have crossed you know, back in the day when I was working for Natives and you were uh, racing at, at university. And, and racing was quite a big part of your early skiing career. You were on the Scottish team, is that right? Yeah, skied for the Scottish team for maybe six years. Started off in, in Scotland, mainly training in Cairngorm. And then we had a, a French-Canadian coach uh, called Eric Prefontaine. And, right. Uh, yeah, we stayed with him out near Montreal. We did the East Coast, the sort of North American races. That's called the NORAM series, uh, is it? Yeah, and I, I forget what the one below that is. We spent a lot of time doing fist races. Right. In, yeah, on the East Coast, which is, yeah, it's a tough place to ski. Cold and icy. Well, perfect then if you come from Scotland, yeah. Yeah, good if you're a dry slope skier. Yeah. And so where are you from in Scotland? Um, Haddington. Well, I'm from East Lothian, but I now live in Haddington. Yeah. Okay, but so when you were a kid, you were from that area. So were you skiing on Hill End at all? Yeah, yeah. So not far from Hill End. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I used to be up Hill End most nights. Actually, my parents would drop me off there. Right. Okay. I was pretty keen on Hill End. Because that is a pretty. I mean, it's the, still the longest dry slope in the UK. Uh, in the UK, yeah. I think there are yeah. probably other ones elsewhere that are longer. But I mean, it's, it's definitely. I would be surprised if there's anywhere steeper than that for a dry ski slope. It's yeah. one of the few places where you. It's uh, so. 
uh, convex. You can't you can't see over onto the steeper pitch. You know? <laughs> right, but if you're skiing slalom, often one of the limiters on the dry slopes. Like when I was at university, and a very different level of uh, skiing. You know, some places we'd go and you'd have like half a dozen gates or ten gates, mm. and then it'd be over. But if you're at Hill End, you could do some proper slalom I training. I forget how many we used to get. I, I, I think at a tight course, we're probably getting up to thirty gates or something. Yeah. So it was it was a good length. And uh, there's some amazing skiing. I've mean, I not been up for a while. I've lost track with, um, you know, the, the ski racing s- sort of scene in the UK. Um, but certainly my last memory was watching Dave Ryden race there, which was just unbelievable. I've never seen somebody generate so much speed out of a plastic ski slope. He learned on um, Pendle uh, yeah, dry yeah, ski course, slope. Yeah. So he had that experience and, uh, you know, actually... Uh, had a chat with uh, Dave a few weeks ago. He was out in Chamonix and I saw him there and interviewed him uh, before that. And, you know, he is definitely leading the way. But one of the things he talked about was the the kind of skiers who'd gone before him because, you know, Alan Baxter is part of that team uh, now. And I don't think, I think Alan was maybe a bit older, but who were your contemporaries in racing around that time? No Baxter was who I trained with. It wasn't anybody, I mean, no got the furthest out of it. It was Gareth Trainer as well who went to Salt Lake in the Olympics. And then, you know, so I was looking up to, yeah, Alan was a bit older, and then Finley Mickle, Emma Carrick Anderson. Well, Shemi was racing, you know, Shemi Alcott was racing when when I was racing. She was younger than me, but, you know, obviously she was so talented. She was was one of the faster female racers. A number of the names that you've mentioned there, I'm sure listeners will recognise. When you said uh, Emma Emma Carrick Anderson, recent listeners will have heard my interview with Zach Carrick and, uh, well, Zach Carrick Smith, her and Phil Smith's uh, son, or one of their sons, who's recently picked up medals at the Youth Olympics. So that runs strong. Leslie McKenna I talked to a while ago. So, I mean, I I knew, I I grew up... um, Knowing a lot of the skiers from Edinburgh on the dry ski slope, and of course there was this um, other scene, the Aviemore scene. You know, who some very talented athletes from from Aviemore. I think Aviemore has got the highest number of Olympians per head or whatever it is for 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 a town in in the UK. So I had a caravan. My parents had a caravan on Glenmore campsite. We used to go up and ski Cairngorm every weekend. So that's where we came across uh, the Baxters and the McKinnas. Right. So um, so you're skiing midweek at Hill End and then yeah, you're going up to uh, Cairngorm at the weekends. Yeah, parents kept me busy, that's for sure. Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, you know, uh, that is something that you've got to do with with uh, young boys, from my experience. You've got to keep them really busy, uh, run them uh, like dogs a bit. But evidently, you were doing so much skiing uh, around that time. Yeah. How did your transition go from that? Because, you know, you, you competed at a very high level, more than any most people are ever uh, going to reach. But you ended up moving to the Alps and working out there? Yeah, so... I had a friend called Alistair Rainback who was involved in starting up New Generation Ski School with Tom Saxland and Warren Hogman. And Ali was keen for me to work for him. And, you know, he was saying, just get through your Bezi, come out and I'll, I'll sort you out of a job. So um, I raced through the Bezi, did it in a couple of seasons and got my car professional and went out to Marybell, worked for New Generation and then was offered the opportunity to start or restart New Generation in Val d'Isere. Um, so spent 10 years out there. I was already interested in ski touring. You know, we'd already been ski touring in sort of late 90s, early 2000s, sort of hike and ride stuff. And, and I think we got our first set of Fritchie Bainers, myself and our friends, maybe early 2000s. We were ski touring in Scotland. So I did a little bit in the Alps and just got more and more into that in the later years uh, using uh, the lift system to access the various peaks around the Van Wyss National Park. And I mean, it's a terrific place for access to Nouvelle And then... That came to an end, took it as far as I could really, and we had a, a, our first child, so it was a difficult place to live. You know, if you haven't got a lot of money, it's hard to... For sure, yeah. for sure. So you met your wife over there in no, Val no, no, we met studying journalism. Right. And she came with me. 
Um, but I mean, her, the agreement was we were going to go backpacking and traveling the world in the summer. And then in the winter, we would, we would work in France. I was expecting it to just be a few years and it ended up being 10 years. You know, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it definitely was time for me to compromise a bit more. Val is a, a tremendous place to spend a, a season, let alone 10. And I know that you mentioned, you know, you got into ski touring then, you're exploring the Vanoise uh, National Park. So what would be some of the, the routes or lift access the areas that you'd uh, look at there? There was a guidebook called the Keys to Spaskili, which... Um, yeah, listed most of the you know most of the best routes in the area. So I was working my way through that because I, I knew that I wasn't going to be staying there indefinitely. So ticked them off as best I could. And were you staying in refuges overnight or these day excursions? Um, I mean, just because of work, I wasn't able. I did. We did use the refuges quite a lot. I had uh, quite a few friends that I'd, I'd ski with out there, and but often we would just be getting up very early. You know, it'd be three o'clock in the morning. I have a memory of there was a time. Must have been after I'd finished working full time there. I went back and did some peak peak week, you know, doing the holiday weeks working for the ski school. So I was in Val d'Isère, and I remember we decided on a day off we were going to do the the Grand Sassier, which is a beautiful sort of pyramid shaped peak opposite Tien. And you know, you have to get up very very early because it's a south facing slope that we were skiing. So we were up at three o'clock in the morning, and I remember walking through Val d'Isère with my skis on my shoulder and everyone spilling out of the night yeah. bus, you know, and all, <laughs> all the guys saying, oh, the lifts are shut, mate, you can't go skiing at the moment. You know, I was like, yeah, yeah. It was such a contrast between, yeah. like, the, you know, what I was trying to do and, and what a lot of other people were coming to Val d'Isère. I, I, I know it took yeah. me there, actually. <laughs> this is kind of like a sort of indication of the change of life because, you know, I've been that person going home at oh, that so time in the morning. Right, but also when, you know, more recently I've been into triathlons and I remember going down to do a, a triathlon in Brighton. And, yeah, they start pretty early because, you know, you need closed roads for those things. And cycling down through town on yeah. my way to do this triathlon, as exactly. all of those people were, like, going home thinking, wow, you know, how times have uh, changed, haven't yeah. they? Uh, you, so on that occasion then, were you um, skinning up from the town? There was no lifts uh, uh, for what that. What did we do now? No, I, th- I think I was going to meet somebody and then we started just above the dam and then yeah you skin up as far as you can and this becomes very steep and then it's ice yeah. and crampons and you're trying to navigate your way up through trying to find the right and, cool cool water in the middle of the night it's just ridiculous yeah. stuff and those years that you were there we we're talking about you know 2000s into the 2010s maybe something like that is that right uh, yeah i think i've finished 2015 yeah did you see a change in val because i think like a lot of resorts have seen change but val maybe I was oblivious to it, to be honest. I didn't stay in Val d'Isère. I went up there and, you know, that's where I worked. Yeah, I didn't really have much to do with it otherwise. I was terrible at sales, so somebody else did sales for me. Um, I tended to do a half day in the morning on the hill and then I would do my admin in the afternoon. Yeah. But like, like like a lot of businesses, um, I started off um, working a lot on the mountain, actually delivering the, the product with the ski lessons and guiding. And then uh, in later years, it got big enough that I took a step back and it became more of an office job. So a lot of the time was spent on the computer, which seems crazy. You know, you think you're in this incredible place. I had a view of Mont Blanc from the window for a stayed and that was doing admin yeah i mean i had a similar um, experience to a certain degree i was working for tour operators when i was doing my seasons of which i did six and you know as i got kind of promoted and had more responsibility i got to do less skiing you know mm. there's a huge amount of paperwork attached in my case you know for example when i was in Courcheval and we had i don't know 300 guests a week you know to try and do the accounts for all of that you know it doesn't sound very exciting you got a view of the mountains still though and you yeah, could go yeah, out from time to time <laughs> And so you came back to Scotland, you know, to uh, start off your family, and then you got the chance to uh, re-explore Scotland as far as you know touring and backcountry is concerned. Yeah, I, I was aware that I, I, 
you know, I, I became, a, I was retrained as a primary school teacher, um, but I was aware that I still wanted to carry on doing what I was doing in some capacity. So I tried to find ways of replicating it, reached out to a lot of people that were interested in steep skiing because that was the thing I was interested in at the time, you know, and then I started looking at gully skiing. It was quite close to the sort of skiing I was doing in the Alps. And also it was a way of developing my mountaineering skills because in Val de Zentin, you can, you can do a lot without ever needing to use an ice axe and crampons without ever having to do rope work. It's not chamonix, you know, it's, it's quite a different skill set. So I was, I was very proficient on my skis, but I was lacking in the mountaineering skills. And those are skills that are um, necessary in Scotland and easy to develop in Scotland. And so I've got two questions from that. Firstly, when you say gully skiing, that's not necessarily evident to most listeners what you might mean by that. What do you mean well, cool by that? Cool skiing if you're yeah. spending time in the Alps. But you're talking about going up those cool wires to come down them. That's why you yeah. need those mountaineering skills. Yeah, and sometimes in from above as well. Because we've got such strong winds in Scotland, I mean, we need the wind because that brings the snow and it packs the upper mountains in, packs the quarries in with snow. They're quite often cornice at the top, so sometimes you need to, you need to, to access them safely. You need to use a rope. Or yes, certainly, if you're climbing up from below, you're going to need to be able to use ice. Yeah. And so how did you develop those skills then? You went on further courses because you're already a qualified instructor. I didn't I didn't initially. Um, I just I kind of taught myself and, you know, from being out with friends and uh, researching online, etc. Um, but, but now that I'm doing this as, well, in the winter, it's my main source of income. You know, in recent years, I've gone back and I've, I've done my winter mountain leader. I did my snow sports mountain leader, which is a more appropriate qualification for working in Scotland than the Basie 4 with the European Mountain Security. The, the awards that we work off, ski instructors work off uh, in the Alps, they're, well, the European Mountain Security is limited in that it, it's, it wouldn't cover you for poor visibility navigation, which we would need to have in Scotland. It's emergency use of a rope, emergency use of ice sets and crampons. It shouldn't be planned use of. And these are all things that when I go out with people, I, I plan to use them. Of course I do. You know, it's part of the route. So I needed to go um, to sort of top up the remit of my awards. Yeah. Um, and, so. and when did British backcountry start as a business then? Oh, I'm not sure. Well, 2015 was when I finished in the Alps. And I think it was a, a year later I started taking people out. And it was all across the country. It was wherever the snow was good initially. A fair bit of work on Ben Lord. So that would have been, I'm guessing, seven or eight years ago. And you doing that in conjunction with Gav Carruthers? No, he was working for Glenmore Lodge. We right. were school teachers and it was like a sort of job on the side. Yeah, I just, I, I, I wanted Gav working for me, not working for somebody else. You know, we grew up together and he was excellent at what he did. And yeah, and, and I knew that he would be able to uh, take the business a bit further than I could. Because um, he's got a good business head on him. Do you want to kind of give us more of an idea of you know what you actually offer? I mean, I know uh, you know if anyone wanted a book, they've got to book a long way in advance, haven't they? But you know what kind of courses are you doing? Uh, so now we're, we've got quite a lot of courses on the go at the moment. It did start off with single day courses because my thinking is in Scotland you can just so easily lose days to the weather, so it's better to just have one day at a time and be very flexible. But now we're doing two day courses, and we ran our first five day course um, last week or two weeks ago. Um, but you can see, uh, though this week we've lost all the snow. In two days, we've lost everything to the rain. Um, so that's why we don't usually offer long courses because there's a chance we have to cancel on somebody. And if you cancel five days, that's a yeah, that's a big yeah, one. for sure. I mean, I went to Glencoe yesterday, and they showed me photos of or uh, images of what the hill was like on Wednesday of yeah, last week, exactly. and what it was like uh, when I went 
Tuesday, so six days later, and it's completely different. I mean, I had a great covering and then it's just gone. Unfortunately, that's a combination of the rain and the temperature. And I guess that maybe just leads us on to uh, climate because we were having a chat earlier about yeah, the impact of climate. I mean, we're all aware that the planet is warming, but you see that impacting on ski touring in Scotland and having an impact on the resorts in Scotland as well. Yes. So, I mean, this season in particular, there has been some issues between ski tours and the operating ski centres. It's because of the pressure on, you know, small areas of snow. People want to access the upper mountains, so they're getting forced to go to high starting points, which is normally a ski centre car park. And then what has been happening, unfortunately, is some, some ski tours have been going up the piste or have been going up a tow track that's just been groomed. It happens, it's worse even with hill walkers, you know, when they walk up a piece of tow track and then it freezes that night, you can imagine. So what's happened is there's been a bit of dialogue between the ski centres and governing bodies and the ski tourers. And Glen Shee has now put in place um, ski touring routes that take you through away from the centre. And you can also, when the lifts are operating, you can buy a ski touring pass. Cairngorm have been fantastic this year as well. They've been very flexible with their ski touring pass. You know, before it was, there had to be a lower lift running. And now you can you get a ski touring pass when the mid-mountains open or when the upper mountains open. So you can walk to the M1, which is part way up the mountain, and then use two lifts to get right up to the top and then get away from the system very quickly. I mean, that sort of flexibility it strikes me it would be, you know, really dogmatic to say, oh, well, we only want to have alpine skiers on the slope when there are so many more ski tourers and people coming to ski touring the whole time. And, you know, for example, you could look at a resort like Courcheval, which most people would perceive to be, you know, it's a very expensive place to go, but you can buy a ski touring pass there. I was chatting to uh, Ed Lee in one of the older episodes of the podcast and told me that's how he accessed the mountain. And I can't remember the exact price, but it'd be around 20 euros and you can use that to get your uplift and then ski tour from there who is it who's introduced a specific touring pass just now then oh glen she and Gorm and uh, glencoe i think yeah they do they offer uplift for ski tours and how much are those passes then i'm not sure about glen she certainly kiringorm's 11 pounds yeah you know, which is which is a bargain to skip the first climb and it yeah. works for the ski center as well because it gets the tours away from this lift area so if we're if we're on Cairngorm, it's because there's not enough snow to be running courses elsewhere in which case it's going to be very marginal conditions and yeah. we need to be able to get through the ski centre without going up pistes. And it, and it makes sense as well, I think, for the resorts to think about providing specific touring routes. If you look at the Alps, most resorts you know, have done that now yeah. because there is that demand there and obviously you need to have that snow to be able to, to provide it. But uh, you know, having those routes uh, up there are going to make a difference. I mean, yesterday I, I ski toured in Glencoe and I followed the uh, the tow lift, but the tow wasn't open. So there was no one else around. So it wasn't really uh, an issue. But I can see how what you're saying is in the future with unpredictable seasons, because sometimes these stats are off the top of my head. They are anecdotal. One in four years up here. Fantastic snow. The other three years, maybe, you know, you're uh, scratching around or it's less predictable. And that's when the kind of pressure points come. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like that now. Yeah. Yeah. So one in four. That feels about right. So we're doing one next year. Right. Okay. (laughs) And just, uh, you know, thinking about that climate side of things, another thing we were talking about earlier, I mean, you do a lot of your courses from the Cairngorms and you mentioned to me that you're finding people, your clients, your customers coming up from uh, down south, but by the train, the Caledonian sleeper Mm. direct to the area. Yeah, yeah, that's been that's been fantastic this year to see so many people doing that. So taking the overnight train, arriving Saturday morning, straight up to the hill, you know, two days of 
courses with us and then back down on the Sunday night. Pack a lot in. Yeah, pack a lot in for sure. The reason for them taking the train is it, I mean, there's a convenience aspect to it because you're covering a lot of ground while you're asleep. But is it also because people are thinking about their carbon footprint and trying to cut it down? I think it's a bit of both. It's certainly, I mean, everybody's different, aren't they? Um, we've had people that have just done it because it's a very easy day to get to, uh, easy way to get two days adventure and yeah. not miss any work. And we've had other people who have said they just don't, they don't fly anymore. They don't drive anymore. So they can get a train up and a bus up and be at the hill. Going from London, for example, it's, it does seem hard to justify when you're almost as close to the Alps as you are to the Highlands. Figure that one out. Must be, pretty, <laughs> must be not much in it time-wise as well. But I think it's the simplicity of it that people like. I mean, it, you know, I came up here on the Caledonian Sleeper. You hop on, you wake up. In my case, in, in Edinburgh, because we weren't going through to uh, the Cairngorms, but it was very straightforward. And, you know, I love those sleepers. I've done a couple in Europe, down to Nice. They, they're not so good for the Alps. You can actually go to Briançon if you want to go to, like, uh, Serre Chevalier or Sestriere or something. And there's a route down to Tarbes near the Pyrenees. But they are talking about reintroducing those night trains down towards Moutier and bourg saint mm. And that would be so good if they did. Because back in the day, I certainly uh, took those as well. So that's really interesting. Uh, earlier on, you showed me um, a copy of your book. Remind me the title of it. The one that, that I've just sold is called uh, Ski Touring the Northern Cairngorms. It was something that I'd been wanting other people to do for a long time. <laughs> and there was lots of um, promise with various groups that had got together and said they were going to do the guidebook, but it never, never materialised. So yeah, in the autumn, I just thought, you know, people are asking for this, I'm going to make one. So I put it all together. Unfortunately, I had enough pictures from working in the Northern Cairngorms to for every route yeah got it out before christmas thinking that maybe i'd sell a couple of hundred <laughs> copies and they sold out in a day um, they sold in a day the first 200 did yeah. fantastic and then i got and then i did another 800 so i did a thousand copies in total and they've all they sold well the other 800 were another four weeks five weeks and they were gone so yeah what i'm thinking now is just take take a bit of time and do something bigger do the whole national park the southern and northern cairngorms and it was looking good at the start of the season i mean the southern cairngorms were loaded with snow and I was thinking about all the different trips I could make, you know, go out and get pictures, and and, uh, and then it melted. So I've got to wait now before I can finish that. The images are, you know, obviously really important as well, but you've got some excellent maps in that book as well. Yeah, the maps have worked out really well, yeah. yeah. And I've been using drones, uh, you know, so, you know, ideally I go out with other people and I, I take pictures of other people. But when you're doing a guidebook and you want to visit a mountain and ski a lot of different routes, you've got to move incredibly fast and it's not always possible to have somebody moving at the same speed as you. So what I've started to do is I send the drone up and I'll ski a line, leave the drone in the sky, I'll ski a line and then I'll bring the drone back to me. So it's like having a little mobile photographer with you, a good way of doing it. Excellent. I love that uh, footage. I've never quite gone as far as uh, buying a drone. I don't know if I'd really get value for money out of it, but I can see how that would be perfect for what you're talking about there. And I know the book is, you know, let's say out of print at the moment. There's only one or two copies left. But, you know, where would people get that from the British Backcountry website? Yeah, there, yeah. There's a, as I say, I can't, I'm not going to be printing another print until I've got the, the finished book because I want to do the, the whole of the yeah. arms, you know, so that'll take me a bit of time. But we'll maybe, maybe toward the end of the season, but most likely it'll be next autumn yeah. in time for Christmas. And within that book, you know, there are a lot of routes through the Cairngorms. Have you, have you put them all in there? Have you got some of your own favourites that you don't want to share and let people uh, know about? Oh, no, the, the, <laughs> the, the, the good ones are all in there, yeah. yeah. Uh, and there's... Um, 
It's a tricky one because the, the the obvious stuff, the high stuff, it all has to go in. But when you get to that kind of mid mountain level, the, and you start to do the lower ones that you really like because you know maybe they're near the trees or whatever, um, you've got to think about realistically how often is that going to be in condition. There are a couple in there which are a bit lower. I had a group out in Glenfeshie last month. Terrific snow down to the valley floor, skinning through Scots pine trees. Beautiful. And I looked across to the right to a route that was in my guidebook, and I saw this group coming down this, you know, basically powder snow and heather, horrendous descent that I'd put in this guidebook, you know, as a <laughs> as a variant of another descent. Uh, and I sort of thought to myself, I really got to be careful what I put in because I could mess somebody's day up here. They go off looking for this uh, this, this <laughs> mythical line that is occasionally in condition, you know, because I've skied it and it's been good, you know. So I've, I've got to think, rethink maybe the lower descent. I guess that, you know, that's always tricky when I have people on the podcast and we're talking about like hidden gems and yeah. I often get feedback from listeners afterwards saying, stop telling people about these things, you know, about these yeah, places. We like it here. Or the hidden gem isn't ever in condition apart from once in right. 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, would you be able to pick out like a personal favourite, you know, one of your, you know, go-to descents or ascents? Yeah, I mean, working working with groups, I mean, consistently Ben McDewey, every single year Ben McDewey's got good skiing on it, and there's there's a terrific descent that goes sort of east off Ben McDewey down towards Loch Anne, very long sort of alpine feel. So, yeah, you have to remind me where that is. Uh, ben McDewey's what? northern Cairngorm, so you yeah. get to it from the Cairngorm Ski Centre car park. It's a bit of a plod out there, but I've been doing a lot of work in that area, and I've, I've, I can do it in such a way that, the, you know, you do one ascent, and then you've got a kind of a... A ski and then a short ascent. It's just a really flowing route that I love guiding. I could give you all the names, but it wouldn't mean anything. Yet. When when the book comes back into print, they can do that. I mean, I can certainly say from the, the last two or three days that I've been up here, I was in Glencoe yesterday, and although the weather was overall you know far from perfect from time to time you know the clouds parted and you have that view from glencoe looking back down over uh, rannock moor yeah. and oh my it's god it's just glorious and and that is just a little bit of the uh the mountains that you got in scotland i mean you've got such an amazing playground to work with here and be able to spend your time in it and i guess the pleasure is like showing other people that as well right yeah, definitely. Certainly, we're working in the Cairngorms, which is somewhere I've become very familiar with. That That is the number one thing for me, is meeting people and showing people what's possible in skis. That's exactly what I hope we're going to do this afternoon. I keep looking out the window. It's, you know, it's, still, it? it's, it's getting brighter. It's getting brighter, so maybe we should get going. Hey, look, Blair, that's fantastic. Thanks for sharing your time and uh, you know all of your knowledge, and I guess everyone else who's been able to go on your courses and read your book as well. And then you know our report, uh, our update of how we get on this afternoon. Thanks very much. Well, I hope you enjoyed our chat as much as I did. As I mentioned at the top of the podcast, we did go out into some pretty shocking weather, but Blair knows what he's talking about, and it was definitely worth it all. You can find out more about that adventure in our next episode. But until then, I'd like to thank Blair for his time. And finally, listener, thank you for joining us. And until next time, goodbye.